Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. I should firstly apologise. There hasn't been a podcast uh, for a couple of weeks. I've been working on my play, uh, which is on at the Drayton Arms in London. Banana Crabtree Simon is what it's called. That's the plug out of the way. It's on till April the 7th, uh, and that's what I've been doing for the last few weeks. But we're back, and uh, what a season it's been for Ronnie O'Sullivan, John Higgins, and Mark Williams. Between them, they've won nine ranking events this season the three most celebrated members of the class of 1992 all-term professional in the second year that the game went open to anyone who could pay their money and they're still all very much going strong with the World Championship just around the corner all three would have claims to potentially win yet another title at the Crucible so today I've been speaking with snooker journalist and commentator Phil Yates about this holy trinity of snooker players Well Phil, before we start talking about Ronnie, John and Mark, I think we should bring a bit of context to it in terms of when they were born. They were kind of born at the right time, weren't they? They were born in the 1970s, so they were young kids in the 1980s when the snooker boom was happening on British TV, and that meant there were loads of clubs and a lot of playing opportunities, and snooker was very much in the culture. Well, I first played Ronnie O'Sullivan in the year when Dennis Taylor beat Steve Davis on the Black 1817. He was 10 years of age, and he beat me in a frame. I played him the following year when he was 11, and I couldn't see how I could possibly beat him, he was that good. Yeah, you're right, snooker halls were flourishing, snooker clubs were opening up on every corner in every high street. The interest in the game was immense, and that's what produced that generation, undoubtedly. The first time we saw them all three play together, of course, was the World Masters at the NEC, um, when they played in the junior competition. Uh, We knew O'Sullivan was going to be something extra special. We weren't quite sure about Williams or Higgins, but boy, what a trio. Yeah, and they all came from, in a way, similar backgrounds. Family got them into snooker. So Mark Williams, his father was a miner, and in Wales, snooker was associated with jobs like that. It was very much uh, working men's clubs and, and that kind of whole working class culture. Mark John Higgins, he told me that his dad took him and his brother to a snooker club sort of every Saturday, um, and that's how he got into playing. Of course, Ronnie's dad was very much a driving force behind his career, wasn't he? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think O'Sullivan and Williams, definitely, as you say, 
products of the times and also of their prevailing cultures. I think with Higgins, he was in many respects a product of not just the fact that snooker was popular, but Stephen Hendry's remarkable achievements. Um, because, you know, what people don't realise now is that Scotland's produced so many great players over the years. Before the arrival of Hendry, they were the whipping boys. They used to play in the World Cup, always get beaten very early on. They never produced a player, suddenly Hendry came through, and then that inspired the next generation, which of course Higgins was part of. Yeah, but I think as what I'm saying is like the culture at the time, I think people maybe don't appreciate just how front and centre snooker was. It was on the BBC, ITV, front pages of newspapers, people like Alex Higgins and Jimmy and all these guys were massive stars, so it, it was a way to get inspired to play. And you look at sort of dads and sons is, is how a lot of these the professionals we know now have started. Uh, and, and, and Ronnie's dad had a table. I mean, they had a table at home, which was a massive advantage. And he used to get top players to come around and practice with him. Well, Ronnie was from a, an affluent a background, and obviously he had tremendous natural aptitude. The general culture at the time, of course, was, as you say, father and sons going down to the club or to the snooker centre or whatever. And the great thing about it was it was so accessible, still is, because to buy a queue, not that expensive, the light per hour, not that expensive, it's not like other games, um, and so once you basically taken up the game for a, a year or two, obviously you were just sort of honing your skills, it was a, a very easy thing for people of all classes to get into, and as you say, the media exposure was unbelievable, we forget about this now, we're just uh, talking here a few days after the Players' Championship in Llandudno, where there wasn't a single newspaper journalist there <laughs> for a massive event mm. back then every single newspaper in Britain yeah. had their own dedicated snooker correspondent it was everywhere wall to wall yeah you mentioned the World Masters <coughs> that was I guess because O'Sullivan's reputation quite rightly was known by then he was the big favourite to win it I guess the fact Higgins won it planted the first seed that okay so there's a bit of a rivalry to come because it wasn't a one off he beat Mark as well didn't he in that tournament he did yes he, f he won a a first prize of £5,000. A lot of these games were televised as well, and so the guys got exposure. Actually, I think in that junior event, the Australian Quinton Hand became the youngest mm. player ever to make a, a century break on TV. Um, Higgins' first prize, £5,000. He was very unlucky, though, actually, because he was returning to Birmingham um, to get his presentation uh, with his manager, Tommy Heenan then and they had a, a breakdown on the motorway and he never actually got to receive the trophy but of course he's made up for it since we picked up a few since yeah absolutely so okay well with the class of 92 so let's talk about 1992 so the game had gone open the year before I mean it used to be a bit of a closed shop to turn professional in the old days you had to be invited literally by a committee and then there were sort of playoffs and various ways of getting on but eventually basically to make money for the association they threw the doors open you could pay your money you could become a professional and you would remember this well because you were covering the qualifiers for snooker scene a lot of people did pay but were no good <laughs> well some of them were appalling I mean they weren't even able league players I was playing at the standard then where I knew full well I wasn't good enough to be a professional to earn money but I was better than say 150, 200 people who turned professional I've got no chance of making a living at the game I'm just making the point that these guys, you know, if they made a 50 it was a miracle um, but of course he clogged up the system so what happened was in the summer of 92 Williams O'Sullivan um, Higgins had to go up to the Norbrook Castle Hotel in Blackpool and play this interminable <laughs> qualifying structure through all rounds of all tournaments 
Williams and Higgins did well, but not quite as well as Ronnie. O'Sullivan had to play 76 matches from late June to early September, and he won 74 of them. It was one of the great achievements of all time. On one occasion he lost because his tip basically ran out of steam and he had to replace it afterwards. The other time he was genuinely beaten. He lost to Sean Storey in one qualifier and Dave Finbo in another. But to win 74 out of 76, and it was amazing, you know, we had those qualifying booths with about 20 seats in them. And there was only two people who ever filled them on a consistent mm. basis. Alex Higgins mm. and Ronnie O'Sullivan. We used to pile in to see O'Sullivan and we couldn't believe how good he was. He beat a guy called Curtis, I can't remember the guy's first name, from Blackburn he was. Very early on, 5-0 inside an hour. And you just knew then, you knew this was a revelatory talent. I mean, he was just so good, it was frightening. We have to say, we knew, snooker people knew Higgins and Williams had got potential, a lot of potential. But you weren't quite sure how they would pan out, but you knew with O'Sullivan. He was a sure fire thing. It was a very labyrinthine process, and you couldn't have it now because there's just too many tournaments. But it was a great grounding for those guys because you look at new players now, they come in, they could be playing Ronnie in round one or Mark Selby, and there's no time to adjust or to sort of improve. You're thrown right in. Whereas then, okay, it took forever, but you were sort of learning your way, weren't you? Absolutely. And the other thing that people tend to forget is that because they played so many matches, many of them against people that they knew they were going to beat it got them used to professional conditions yeah. back then the tables were BCEs and they weren't like club tables at all so these guys had a lot of matches on those tables and it meant that when they got to venues they were acclimated they knew exactly what to expect and that's why they pretty much made an immediate impact what were they like to, to sort of interview because I haven't known them as long as you but it seems to me fundamentally they haven't really changed that much as people they seem kind of the same people as they were when they kind of started out O'Sullivan at 16 gave you a better interview than many seasoned professionals. He was absolutely brilliant and he used to love coming into the media centre because he loved all that kind of thing. He was very inquisitive, still is, mm. and he spent a lot of time in the press room chatting away and talking about the history of the game. Um, John Higgins was fine, very approachable, very friendly, as he still is. Mark Williams, I recall, very early on in his career, before he really broke through, was quite shy. Um, but that, soon, <laughs> that yeah. soon went. A long time ago. <laughs> that soon went, yeah. yeah. I mean, we have to say, Mark, one of the nicest people you could wish to meet. Very funny, very grounded. And people always say, oh, you know, has success gone to his head? Well, I'll tell you what, <laughs> definitely with him, not. He's the same as he's always been. Absolutely. Well, let's, let's sort of start to break down each one then. So, obviously, Ronnie was the first to make a breakthrough when the UK Championship. I mean, incredible, really. 17. You beat Stephen Hendry in the final at Preston. And what it showed you was that he, he felt he belonged in this game. You know, there was no doubt, was there? He, he, he'd been instilled in him from a young age. You're going to be a champion. And very soon he was. I thought O'Sullivan could win ranking events in his teenage years. But to win the UK Championship a week before his 18th birthday, the UK Championship, mm. I mean, back then, there's debate now as to which is the, the second biggest event after the, the World Championship. But back then... The pecking order was definitely World Championship, then you got the Masters and the UK Championship. So to win that, and to beat Hendry in the final over 19 frames, just a, a phenomenal achievement. And he wasn't quite a changing of the guard. That, that took a, a little bit longer than that, but you just knew he'd arrived. We knew previous to that he was going to win a ranking event, maybe not imminently, but a year or two years down the line. But he was definitely a little bit earlier than most people expected. Mm. 
But I think it's true to say, okay, he felt he belonged as a top player, but he didn't actually find the spotlight that, that easy to be part of. And because he was in, of that lineage, Higgins and White, he was sort of earmarked as a bit of a hellraiser. And I think when he was young, maybe partly played up to that, but he found himself suddenly public property, which is hard. And obviously his father had been sent down, we know that as well. It wasn't easy for him. Well, the first thing he did with the trophy uh, at Preston was take it um, on a visit to see his dad. Yeah, I mean, he was very much in the spotlight and it was difficult for a, uh, a boy, really, of that age mm. to, to deal with. Um, people were saying, sensational headlines, you know, he's going to absolutely dominate the game for the next, wherever it was, 10, 15 years. And he didn't dominate. I think, you're right, I think he did play up to that sort of maverick image, you know, the entertainer rather than the champion. And it's only maybe in the last 10 years where he's become more a champion than an entertainer. And he's still a phenomenal entertainer. Yeah. By his standards, and his standards are about the highest you can have, it took him a while to become world champion. He was 2001, so he was 25. Um, he'd had a couple of near misses, a couple of beatings, Hendry and a couple of others at the Crucible. There was always a sense it would happen, but he still had to do it, didn't he? It was worrying. It really was worrying because people were saying, is he going to be the next Jimmy White, you know, the man who, by all means, should have been a world champion and never was? Could Ronnie possibly miss out the same way? When you think back about it now and how long ago it was, you know, and the subsequent chances he's had and continues to have, it's a little bit absurd, but there was a genuine concern that that might happen because it would have been such a, a waste of, of talent. And that's what always amuses me now, when people say, oh yeah, he's definitely going to win the World Champion, this guy's definitely going to win the World Champion. You know, you can't say that about anyone. If O'Sullivan waited mm. as long as he did, what about the others? How long would they have to wait? Mm. We talk, we've talked for a long time about the two Ronnies. You know, you've got the genius at the table and the troubled genius off the table and all that. And, and there's actually a lot of truth in it. He, he, he does have this other side and we've sat kind of listening to him sometimes he's been very down and quite negative and I think it turns a lot of people off actually you know I think everyone appreciates O'Sullivan's skill you can't not if you're a snooker fan some people don't like the kind of show around him I think it's fair to say yeah I think so but you know I think what he says in public isn't what he thinks in private um, he practices a lot he works very hard at his game he wants to establish records he wants to be known as the greatest player of all time he would never say that, would he, in a press conference? I think sometimes it's to make himself look like somebody who doesn't really care when he does. And I think it's also maybe a, an attempt to sort of deflect the pressure and also to create an image, a public image, which is not actually true. That said, you know, if he wants to do that to deflect the pressure, fine, it's up to him completely. And as long as he keeps winning and playing like this, I don't mind what he does because it's an absolute joy to watch. The thing with O'Sullivan is that he's got this image of being nonchalant. I don't care. When in fact, he really does care. Yeah, and also I think he, he has genuine humility. Like, he won't come in bigging himself up. He'll speak very highly of Mark and John, for example, and sort of put John above himself. Whereas actually the records show Ronnie is, is sort of above John. Um, I think what's, what's nice to see is that he has actually reached a nice sort of plateau in his life where he's got his other interests, he's got his running and obviously does Eurosport now and all, all that stuff and he's got enough going on that it's not all about snooker and of course this era is perfect for him, he doesn't have to play in everything so when he enters the tournament it's because he wants to be there That's right, yeah, absolutely, good life balance and I think uh, that's reflected in the way 
he's approaching snooker, his attitude, his sustained discipline, his patience has never been better. And that's why he's winning, because the talent level, about the same as it's always been really, you might even say slightly less, in terms of how he can buzz around a table and make things look preposterously easy. But because he's so patient and sensible, and he's a phenomenal safety player, that's why he's winning so much. Mm. Let's move on then to John Higgins, and, and if, if Ronnie is kind of this unstable genius as, as he's been so portrayed, John Higgins, in his early days, had the stable life and looked like the successor to Hendry in terms of the consistent winner, didn't he? Yes, absolutely, yeah. When Higgins won his first ranking title, it was against uh, Dave Harold at the Assembly Rooms in Derby in October 1994. And then you knew he was going to be a very solid professional. You didn't quite know how good he was going to be, but you knew he was going to be a winner of multiple ranking events and a top 16 fixture. But what really sold him to me was what happened in February 1995. He just lost to Steve Davis in the Welsh Open final, which was a little bit earlier in those days. And then he went to the International Open in Bournemouth, event which was shown on Sky, and consequently I was commentating on it. And he played Davis again in the final. Now, it wasn't an aesthetically pleasing final <coughs> by any means. It was very scrappy, actually, and tactically orientated. And he absolutely outthought and outplayed the great tactical maestro Davis. And bear in mind, he's still a teenager. So when he won that match, I knew this guy destined for special things. Yeah, and weirdly, we talk about Ronnie eventually becoming world champion. There wasn't really any doubt that Higgins would win it. I remember that 98, 20 years away now from that. And it was almost sort of inevitable he was going to win it. They didn't seem that there was anything missing from his game, and there's no reason why he shouldn't win it. Well, the remarkable thing about that, of course, was that he'd won the, the British Open just before. He'd beaten Hendry yeah. in the final, which kept faint hopes alive that he could possibly take over from Hendry as mm. world number one. Basically, he had to win the world championship, and Hendry had to be beaten in the first round. Well, again, the chances of that were very slim. But Hendry lost to Jimmy White, a very unlucky first-round draw for Hendry. And then, once Higgins had got past a couple of matches, you thought, yeah, you're right. There was a sort of almost an inevitability, because A, he was playing so well, and B, he was playing so coolly. He absolutely exuded confidence, and you couldn't see him losing. But he ultimately didn't dominate in the way Hendry did, and... I think one of the reasons was he, he wasn't maybe as prepared to sacrifice everything. Like he's, had his, he's got his family, you know, his wife and his kids, and likes the home life. Whereas Stephen Hendry would be out at the club every morning, nine o'clock every day, relentlessly trying to win the next tournament. And in fairness to John, most people aren't like that. Most people aren't like Stephen Hendry and Steve Davis. Yeah, well, in 86, when our mate and our colleague mm. Joe Johnson won the title, everyone he was calling him Ordinary Joe. Higgins was ordinary John just like he liked the stuff everybody else liked he liked going to the football mm. going to the pub whatever yeah I, I would say yeah, he wasn't quite as dedicated or obsessed uh, as, as uh, Hendry was but I think there's another thing actually that held him back and I think he would agree with this as well in that sort of period between his first and his second world title he was obsessed with tinkering with his mm. cue mm. and that put him back you know he'd have a piece knocked off or cut off the end and then something put yeah. on and the length of the kin, different stuff and he, he was never really settled with a, a piece of equipment and he always thought in terms of the cue that the you know the other man's grass is always greener and, and that kind of thing and I think that held him back as well but listen we're not talking negatively about Higgins even in that period between the two world titles he was still winning regularly mm. and such a clever player you could tell that his favourite player was Steve Davis and of course also when he was young 
he was mentored by Alan McManus, another very knowledgeable player, and he retained all that knowledge. And you can still see it now. You can you could just see you can see his sort of thought processes ticking over, and and that's I guess why for him longevity is not really an issue because you don't forget all that. <clears throat> I interviewed him last week for ITV, and the first question was very general question. John, you, you've had a, a fantastic season. He said, I have. He said, the highlight for me, not just winning those two tournaments, but the fact they took me past Steve mm. Davis mm. on the pantheon of ranking event winners. He's now won 30 ranking events, puts him third on the list. Steve Davis is fourth with 28. I didn't mention Davis at all. The fact that it was in his mind, it shows you what he holds Steve in, the, the very highest regard. Mm. He's such an all-round player, and... I think the greatest compliment you can pay John Higgins is that Stephen Hendry and Ronnie O'Sullivan both think he's the bee's knees. Mm, yeah, yeah. If they think you're good, yeah. you're good. Yeah. Because he's nine years before winning first and second world title, but then they came in a little bit of a, of a flood after that. 2011, he played particularly well, beat Judd Trump in that, in that final. Of course, last year, I think he probably would have beaten anyone other than Selby in that final. I just thought then... Maybe age was against him because at the age of 42, now, obviously 41 then, 17 days, we know it's mentally exhausting, but maybe it's a little bit physically exhausting. I mean, I know from a a journalistic standpoint, Mm. you know as well, Dave, when Mm. you're there for 17 days at the end of it, you're pretty much cream crackered, aren't you? You know, and he played a, a lot of hard matches, he was under a lot of pressure, and maybe he just ran out of steam at the end. Mm. It was great to see Mark Selby win it because he's such a, a great bloke and a great champion, but what a story it would have been had Higgins won in his 40s. One of the things I like about John actually is that he, like, he, he doesn't have this modern thing of going to the gym and going running and being a vegan. He's just, like you say, the ordinary guy and he's still obviously very successful. The other member of the Holy Trinity, Mark Williams, he looked like he'd sort of fallen away a bit, didn't he? He looked like he'd become very much the sort of junior member of this, of this team, but he's turning around in great style. But let's, let's before we get on to his sort of resurgence, just reflect on his early years. Um, very sort of exciting player, and you could tell he had that grounding in the sort of Welsh, um, in the Welsh game. Not just the game itself, but also the sort of the bottle. You know, the actual ability to stand up in big matches. Not more so than when he won the Masters on the respot. Yeah, Williams was always very <coughs> pleasing on the eye, like a lot of left-handers in sport, mm. cricketers, golfers, snooker players. Lovely silky cue action and played. I always think still does in a throwback style. He hits the balls very quietly and floats them around. And he's lateral thinking on a snooker table. I think he's second to none. Mm. When it comes to winning scrappy frames, he's the greatest player of all time for me. Yeah, um, and he used to take a, a real pleasure in winning them as mm. well. The first time he won a ranking event was the 1996 Welsh Open. Um, back then. 64 players at the venue so he had to win six matches his highest break in those six matches was 76 Mm. Willie Thorne who was commentating with me on Sky at the time said I'm really pleased for the young man but unless he improves his break building he won't win again well he's won 20 ranking titles now and I think strangely at the age of 42 he's perhaps a heavier scorer now than he's ever been Mm. but what a player completely on his own unique excellent my best Mark Williams story, and I think this encapsulates the person and the player. When he played Ken Doherty in the 2003 World Championship final, and bear in mind Ken was coming back at him and he was under an awful lot of pressure, he went out for the last session 
and he was telling a group of journalists in the press room, I think you might have been there, I certainly certainly was, and a couple of others, he's telling us a joke. And one of the officials came down and said, OK, Mark, it's time to go on. He went, hold on a minute, I haven't told him yeah, the punchline yeah, yeah. yet. He finished the joke and went out for yeah. the world final. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of guy he is. He is genuinely laid back. Yeah, and it, it can only help because, he, like you say, wouldn't sit worrying about what's going to happen. He very much had a good attitude to winning and losing, the sort of Kipling thing about, you know, treat them the same. He would do, and he wouldn't over-celebrate a win. Obviously, he wanted to win, he was very competitive in the arena. But maybe it wasn't everything. I think in some ways, because he did come from a very kind of working-class background where they didn't have a lot. Obviously, the miners' strike, when, when, he's, when he was a lad, he saw hardship. And I think he was just had gratitude that he was playing the game and earning you know, good money from it. And he loves being away from home as well. <laughs> now, that's not to say he doesn't like being at home, but the point is, it's not a chore for him, and it still isn't. If he's in Azerbaijan or the Azores or whatever, he enjoys the, the process of being at a tournament, seeing the world. He's not one of those moaners, he just gets on with it. And I think that's why he's done so well, particularly overseas. I think he's an absolutely phenomenal player to have around. And the resurgence, you said you'd talk about that a little later, the resurgence for me has been one of the stories of the season. Yeah, because he looked like he hadn't gone. He was still a top 16 player or just out. One of those players who sort of, you know, would always be on the sort of cusp of top 16 or not. Now he's back in the top eight and he's done it by actually standing back and not being prepared to just sort of slide down the list. He made a decision to do something and he's following the sight right uh, technique. Everyone's got their own opinion about that. It's worked for him and it's worked in style. It's so reminiscent of what happened to Doug Manjoy in 1988. Then it was Frank Callan and the drill. Manjoy was finished. He, he lost in the World Championship in the... April 13-2 I think it was or 13-1 to Neil Folds he topped what a, what a, an embarrassment <laughs> <laughs> he, he topped a cue ball uh, in the match he, he was terrible and then of course he found Frank Callan in the subsequent months and in the following November he beat Stephen Hendry in the UK Championship mm-hmm. final making three consecutive centuries I think Mark's a very similar story Stephen Feeney the, the founder and the, the developer of the sight right method swears by it so does Mark he adopted every single shot, you can see it, square to the ball, mm. off he goes. And the way he's played this year has been phenomenal. Uh, I didn't see an awful lot of the Northern Ireland Open. But to come back against Yan Bing Tao from one down two to play to win that was very illuminating, I thought, in terms of his bottle, which is still very much intact. But the way he played against Graham Dot in the German Masters final was simply phenomenal. I mean, tremendous stuff. And we're talking now in, in late March, just after the Players' Championship. I thought his quarter-final against Ryan Day in Landudno summed up his season. The first four frames were immaculate. The cue ball control from another planet. Day came back to 4-3, and you think, oh, well, will Mark Wobble? No, he knocked in a red from like the old days, a trademark long red, made a 1-4-1. That, that's the form he's in. He goes to the Crucible with a real chance of winning it. Yeah, well, we've had 18 ranking events this season. Um, they've won half them between them. Ronnie's won five, John's won two, Mark Williams has won two. So all three of them are going there with a great chance. Um, but we know that the Crucible is a different beast. I guess of the three, Ronnie's got to be the favourite. I mean, he's had a sensational season. Um, now, a lot can go wrong in Sheffield, but he's got a great chance. Well, I saw at the weekend, <coughs> Ronnie O'Sullivan was quoted by some firms 
as a two to one favourite to win the World Championship. Now you know Dave, Army's biggest fan. Well, one of them. <laughs> He's got many. But I don't think two to one's value purely because I don't think anyone's a two to one chance to win the World Championship these days. It's such a an exhausting process over the 17 days the potential opposition he's going to face we don't know the draw yet do we it could be a really tough draw it might be an easier one but here's the irony the, the irony is what could stop Ronnie winning is one of the other two because often when he loses it's to someone he really respects particularly Higgins I think he's got a, so much respect for John Higgins and of course he's lost matches there to him before so what could stop him is one of the other two, and of course that applies for them as well. Ronnie O'Sullivan could stop them. Absolutely, absolutely, and there's plenty of others as well who could come forward and, and play their best snooker when they need it most. Stuart Bingham, uh, that was a classic case. He played brilliantly to win. Uh, I reckon there's over ten players who could win the championship, so basically two to one O'Sullivan, not good value. That said, I think he's highly motivated to do well. Obviously, if he wins this, he draws level with Steve Davis and Ray Reardon with six crucible victories, and he's only one off equaling Stephen Hendry's record. It would be great for Snooker if Ronnie were to win because he's one of those players. In fact, I think in this sense, he's unique. He's adored by the public and this season he's been dominant. Mm. People want to keep seeing him win. Yeah. It's not like Hendry and Davis yeah. who on occasions were booed very mm. badly and completely unjustifiably, but they were booed at certain venues because they were winning so much in the British sporting psyche is we like to see the underdog win. When O'Sullivan's playing, I want to see the underdog buried by O'Sullivan. Yeah. Well, just finally then, there's been various times in all three careers where it looked like it might be over for various reasons for them. They're all still going strong, they're all still winning. How much longer can, can they go on? I mean, it just seems they're so good in all departments. It's going to take a, a very rapid decline for them not to still be top players. Fifteen years ago, if you'd asked me that question, I would have said all of them would have had their feet up <laughs> in Chigwell, Wishaw and Ebervale. Mm. Now, I think that could genuinely go on for another, at the top level, for at least another four or five years. A, because they've maintained their own standards so well, and B, because the number of young players coming through to face them, the number of truly world-class young players coming through to face them, are slow to a trickle, hasn't it, really? Ding came through in 2005. You've had Trump come through in 2011. Karen Wilson, Anthony McGill is a very, a very solid player as well, and other names in the mix as well, but not that great amount. So the groundswell of talent coming through isn't there. So they've maintained their own standard. Not so many challenges. Four or five years, definitely. One point about Mark Williams, by the way, which might sum all this up, is that three years ago he was crowned World Seniors Champion. Yeah. Now we're here talking about him winning the world championship itself yeah absolutely of course the thing is the culture has, has changed in Britain it wasn't like it was when they were born you know snooker is it's massively popular around the world but it's not the same as in the 80s and maybe there are fewer young people getting involved one thing I would say though was there were a lot of other kids who got involved in snooker in the 80s that did nothing at all these three are very very special and we continue to enjoy watching them and you know 83 ranking titles between them is absolutely incredible I'm sure there will be more to come Phil thank you we're looking forward to the world championship but uh, that's it for now. Sports Social Podcast Network.
Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChumbaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.